still in Matthew, starting chapter 13 this week. And, uh, last week we looked at uh, Jesus talking about a tree and its fruit. And who determines what kind of tree you will be? You do. And who determines what kind of fruit you'll bear? You do. God doesn't determine these things for you, as Calvinism teaches. As if you're involuntarily born a bad tree, and you have to stay a bad tree by force. Or you're involuntarily born a bad tree, and God forced you to become a good tree, and you have to stay a good tree by force. You can go back and forth. You decide what kind of tree you're going to be, and what kind of tree you are, which is what you chose to be, determines what kind of fruit you'll bear. According to Jesus in Matthew 7, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So the tree is synonymous with your will and with your heart, which is what controls who you are, what you are, what you'll produce, what you'll be like in this world. And we looked at uh, this sign that was given to the Pharisees, this, this, this sign that he said would be given to them this three days and three nights. And look at how the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, a reluctant prophet who had really no love in his heart for the people of Nineveh. And God had to send him into a great fish for three days and three nights to teach him a lesson, which is almost, I didn't force him to go. He could have stayed in the belly of the great fish for forever if he wanted to, I guess. There was some really heavy, heavy influence from God. Just like Saul had some heavy influence from God on the road to Damascus, Saul could have walked around blind the rest of his life if he wanted to. He'd have to become the Apostle Paul but some heavy influence. And the, the Ninevites, who were pagans, who were heathens, who had, did not have the law of God, repented at the preaching of a reluctant, unloving prophet. Who, when he preached, didn't even offer him a secondary thing. He said, God's going to destroy you. That's what he wanted in his heart. He wanted them to be destroyed. And God forbid we ever become like Jonah. And we're preaching the gospel. We want people's destruction. We offer them the hope as well. And so they had greater judgment because Jesus, the God-man who came to them, not reluctantly, but willingly, and showed them many things, had great love in his heart for them. And they're the people of God, the covenant people of God, who had the law of God, who had the miracles of God, the things from the past, yet they didn't repent. They called him of the devil. They said, what you do is with the power of the devil, not the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw the same thing with the Queen of Sheba. And then we looked at this issue of this demon-possessed person, and we read the story from Ray Comfort's biography, and I've heard that many people have actually took up that autobiography and started reading it for themselves. That's good. And uh, for those of you who like to read, I want to give you some more people who you might want to read autobiographies or biographies of. So if you want to write these down, you're I actually had a list of about 20 people, but I forgot it at home, so I'm going to go off the top of my head. Uh, John Wesley. Menno Simons, that's spelled M-E-N-N-O. His last name is Simons, S-I-M-O-N-S. Former Roman Catholic priest who became a Christian and became one of the reformers that you don't know of. You know, usually here is Martin Luther and John Calvin, but Menno Simons was like an Anabaptist reformer. And he had some good stuff. Um, George Fox, a Quaker. You read his journals constantly dealing with Calvinists. Constantly. He calls them those who try to use the Bible to defend their sin. Who are constantly pleading for imperfection, he says. Always dealing with them. Uh, a companion of John Wesley, John Fletcher. <coughs> and then you have John Wesley's brother, Charles Wesley. Charles Finney. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, before they stood out in front of Walmart and rang a bell for money. They would march down the streets and be the actual Salvation Army. They marched down the street like an army and preached salvation. They weren't ringing bells at Walmart asking you for money at Christmas time. They went forth preaching the gospel like an army of God. A.W. Tozer. Um, Leonard Ravenhill. 
John, his nickname was Praying, John Praying Hyde, H-Y-D-E. Reese Howells, R-E-E-S is his first name, Reese, and then Howells, H-O-W-E-L-L-S. Francis Asbury, another good one. Francis Asbury. You may have heard, if you're familiar with seminaries, Asbury Theological Seminary, which is right in Kentucky. And he was one of the, he was one of the main leaders of the Methodist Church here in America when it first came over here. The go along with Francis Asbury, Peter Cartwright, who was in this area, big. Uh, me, brother Kevin, and brother John went out to Hopkinsville Community College recently last semester and preached there and. It's found in Christian County. And that's where Peter Ricardo ministered originally. Uh, so you have him. Um, you read early church fathers uh, about their accounts in Eusebius's church history. So he, Eusebius's church history gives a history of the church up until the time of the 300s. Who was the guy that went to uh, China? Hudson Taylor. Um, he's a very unknown guy. His name is uh, William Taylor. And he was a Methodist preacher in San Francisco during the gold rush days. And the title of his, it's one of my favorite biographies. The title of his biography is Seven Years Street Preaching in San Francisco. And it has lots of other subtitles along with that, but Seven Years Street Preaching in San Francisco. Uh, well, no, it's, it's reprinted now. Uh, the Michigan Historical Society reprinted it from their University of Michigan library, and it's it's a little expensive, about 25 bucks, I think, but it's thick, and it's a good read. I really like it. So those are some off the top of my head. I know there's some I'm missing that I wrote down. So you got a list? I have a list. Yeah, yeah, I, I can, yeah, I can grab the list afterwards. And these are just the ones who've impacted me the most. I, I can read the biographies over and over again. It would really encourage me. And, and my favorite kind of book, besides the Bible, is a biography. Any day. Over a theology book, over anything against Calvinism, biographies. George Mueller. That's another one, yeah. His autobiography. That one really impacted me. You know. Susanna Wesley, you mean? Susanna Wesley. That's John, John Charles Wesley's mother. Uh, Martyr's Mirror is a good reference. Martyr's Mirror is good about martyr, martyrdom for Anabaptists. Yep. Uh, Martyr's Mirror. It's a collection of, it's kind of like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is martyrs throughout the years. But Martyr's Mirror is about Anabaptists for the most part. And I think mostly during the Reformation period because they were being killed by the Catholics and the Protestants. So those are those are off the top of my head. I know there's a couple more that I really like that I'm forgetting. Oh well, I can give it to you later. But uh, if you like Ray Comfort, I know Ray Comfort's so a good writer, and he's got a lot of good stories in there. I would encourage you to pick these ones up too and, and give him a read. And uh, just on a, another note, on the possession before I get to today's teaching is um, on Friday, me and John got to Columbus. Or Preached for a little while first, it was really hot, the storm started coming in, wind was blowing in, the wind knocked over some barbecue stands, uh, we, were, we were preaching and this guy was kind of, the one that got knocked down the most, John was preaching, this guy was lifting his voice by his barbecue at the same time John was preaching, so it might have been like the God angry with him, I don't know. Uh, but um, later on that evening we went back out, uh, John was preaching and I was just sitting on my sandwich board and passing out tracks, and um, this guy came to me and he was looking at my sandwich and said, do you have any questions? And we went back and forth, he asked some questions for a while. And then he said something really interesting, which showed me he was demon-possessed. He, he said, he said, let me tell you something. So I, I said, I'm, I'm done answering your question. Let me tell you something. You're not, I'm not done with you. He said, I, I see blood all over you. He said, it's my job. God sent me here. It's my job to knock you into heaven right now. He said, go ahead and tell me to do it, and I'll do it. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, 
at first when he said he had blood over, I thought he was saying I had blood on my hands from not witnessing enough. I was like, oh, no, I thought that can't be it. But he he saw the blood of Jesus Christ on me, and uh, he 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 really wanted to, to knock me out. He kept on trying to rope me to to say it. You know, go ahead, say it. Go ahead, tell me I won't do it. You know, and I was like, man, get away from me. You're you're of your father the devil. And uh, he eventually went away. And I guess he tried to bother you a little bit later on when I was preaching too. But uh, he was, uh, in my opinion, truly demon possessed. And it's like he changed too, because when he was asking me questions and I was answering him, he was seemed like human. But then when he started saying stuff like that, he seemed really vicious. I mean, just vicious. Yes, he was asking me permission. He knew he couldn't touch me unless I gave him permission. Yeah, and that's what me and John were talking about on the way home yesterday. That he couldn't touch me unless I let him, unless I told him to. So I had the blood of Jesus on me. So you believe that you could have said, okay, yeah, you can touch me, and then the Lord's protection would have... Maybe. But I wasn't going to test God. No, of course not. And uh, even though I'm ready to go to heaven at all times, uh, I, you know, I want to be here for a while longer. I want to raise my children. I want to teach the word of God. I want to disciple people. And, uh, you know, it's always that thing Paul had. I want to be with the Lord, but I want to be here at the same time. So, I don't know what would have happened, but I just know his threats. They came out of nowhere. They seemed real. They seemed vicious. And he said, he, he, he said, I see blood all over you. You know, that doesn't just come from some sinner. That comes from something supernatural. So it it taught me another thing, too, is what is that I I have the mark of God on me. Just like Ray Cupper said in the story, when that that girl was unconscious, blacked out, trying to pull that that safety pin out of her and put it in her mouth. He's like, you can't hurt us. He's like, I know I can't hurt you. I'm going to hurt her. Because she didn't have the mark of God, the blood of Jesus on her. But that demon... In that inside that girl knew she couldn't hurt Ray Comfort or the old people there because they had the blood of Jesus upon them. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something to look at and see that the spiritual realm they see that. Yes. Where the physical realm they, they don't see the blood. But sometimes you talk about the blood of Christ. Right. Sometimes people don't mean the blood of Jesus. Right. You, you apply the blood of Jesus to your life, and it doesn't make sense in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, it makes total sense. It's just like the, at the Passover. The blood was on the doorpost. It's on the doorpost of my heart. You know, so the 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 death can't touch me. They can't touch me. So. Yeah, I I, I didn't have a recording of that. I well, right right. I might have some of it on video because I just he was starting to say some weird things. You know, I might have it on video because I started videotaping you because the police came up. And that's when I was trying to dismiss him. So I have to look back. I might actually have some of that on, just a little bit of on video. I hadn't thought about that. <coughs> but his while this is going on, I have this woman rebuking me for preaching the wrong way. And her father uh, was standing by. And, you know, why, why are you letting your women come correct the preacher? Why don't you come? If I'm doing something wrong, why don't you come talk to me? Why are you standing back here in the shadows while you're your wife or your daughter, whatever you know, not the word, but the woman that's with you come to talk to me? And uh, you got a little upset at that. I'm the police step in. You can't say those kind of things. Okay. Uh, I can say I have freedom to speak. I'm speaking the Bible. I'm preaching the truth. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Right, and then his, uh, I guess his supervisor, I don't know, they were both sergeants, but the other sergeant was both sergeants. Did the fake come here, sergeant? Talked him for a minute, and they went off. And those two went off, and then uh, I guess I, I kept preaching at that point. But. Yeah, so the, the, the whole point I was making was just the whole demon possession thing. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to... We can talk about the rest of it later on. Yeah. Rest of and stuff. Uh, but this, it was just a real real encounter for me, and I thought it would be interesting for you guys to hear that. Okay, today we're talking about the parable of the sower. Seems we're going through verse 23. A very, in my opinion, misunderstood parable by many people. 
even people I respect to some degree. So let's just start reading in verse 1 and go to verse 23. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seed, and he sowed, and some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell in stony places, where they did not have much earth. They immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. For when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, the thorns sprang up and choked them. <coughs> but others fell on good ground, and yielded a crop, some a hundred fold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came and asked and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. Forever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you will, you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their, their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes, and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy. He has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. When tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the seafulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Okay, so here we have Jesus for the first time, in the Gospel according to Matthew, speaking in parables for the first time. And let me give you a definition of the word uh, parable. Uh, parable is two Greek words put together, para and balo. Two Greek words put together. Para means alongside. And to help you remember what a para means, think of parallel. Okay? Alongside. And balo means to cast. So para is alongside, balo is cast, parable, we have the two Greek words. And so basically it means to cast alongside of. So, so Christ is taking two truths and casts them alongside of each other to compare them to. That's what a parable is. Comparison. Yes. Comparison of two truths that can relate to each other. Okay. So he's speaking to them in parables, and uh, a sower went out to sow. Now what is this sower sowing? seed, okay. In the natural sense, he's sowing seed. In the spiritual sense, which is the come alongside of truth here, what is he sowing? The word. Uh, in fact, that's what uh, uh, Luke 8.11 says. Or the Luke account of this. Luke 8.11 says the word of God. Now the Matthew account, which we see here in verse 19, when Christ explaining the parable, so he says, anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So word of the kingdom and word of God are synonymous. They're the same thing. And it brings up a, another question that maybe you have encountered uh, along, along your, your walk, is that there's people out there who say the word of God is only Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, there's some popular teachers on YouTube who would say that. Say that. But the word of God is the seed, according to Luke 8.11. Okay? And the, word, the Greek word translated as word is the Greek word logos. The same word that's found in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. Okay. So, the seed of the gospel, the word of the kingdom, is also the word of God. Now, maybe they, maybe it should be lowercase instead of uppercase. We're not talking about a personal pronoun, an actual person here. We're talking about a thing. But it's still the word of God. 
And logos, this is what the Greek word logos means. And you can see how it, it can mean both things here, both Jesus and the actual words of God. A communication whereby the mind finds expression. A communication whereby the mind finds expression. So, my mind finds expression in communicating the gospel. The kingdom. Preaching the kingdom. God's mind found expression in human form, Jesus Christ. God's mind found expression in human form, Jesus Christ. He's, a, he's a, the Logos of God. Or the Logos of God. So the Word of God can mean the actual Gospel, the words preached, or it can mean Jesus Christ. And the definition doesn't change. It's still a communication whereby a mind finds expression. They can be expressed in many different ways. You, you can you can you can express your mind through communication with body language, with tone of voice, with just words, or by sending your son into the world to show the perfect image of the Father to the world. So the word of God can mean the gospel, the preaching. I want you to notice something here, that Jesus did not tell parables. He did not tell parables until after his miracles were called of the devil twice. He didn't start teaching in parables. Matthew 5-7, through Sermon Mount, there's no parables in there at all. Very clear, very simple teachings. They started teaching in parables when his miracles are called of the devil two different times. Matthew 9-34, and then we just read it recently, Matthew 12-24. That, to me, shows the patience of God. That shows the patience of God with those who are calling his miracle of the devil when it's really from the Holy Spirit. So the seed being sown by the sower, and the sower can be anyone. Um, obviously, it's Christians. But they're sowing the seed of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And before we go on here, and this will be important for later on, later on in this teaching today, remember this. It's the same seed, the same word, all throughout. It doesn't change. Because many people, their interpretation of the parable of the sower, they don't get that. They don't get that point. They seem to think that in some seeds, that it was a bad gospel being preached. Or a watered-down gospel message being preached. No, this is actually the seed of the Word of God, the Gospel of the Kingdom. That's what's being preached. Not a watered-down version, not a bad version to some some grounds and not to other grounds. It's not as if the good grounds are the only one that had a good seed. The problem wasn't the seed. The problem was the soil. That's going to be very important, remember, as we, we move on today. Okay, so we saw that he sowed seed on the wayside. And the birds came in and devoured them. Now, Luke chapter 8 and verse 5, the Luke account of this, gives another adjective here to what happened to the seeds on the wayside. It was trampled. And when you go someplace, there's lots of hard-hearted sinners. The word of God will get trampled sometimes. They'll get trampled. People respond in very vicious, vicious and violent and very wicked ways. The word of God will get trampled because of where the seed of the gospel is being sown, on hard ground. And some fell in stony places, where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. When the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Now, Farmer John, what's the three things every seed needs to be successful? Well, we, we, we're, we're, we already know the seed's good now. So what's the three things a seed needs to, to grow? Water. It needs uh, sunlight. And it needs soil. Good soil. It needs good soil. So every seed, 
we're assuming it's a good seed now. We're talking. We're comparing it to what Jesus is saying here, spiritual in a spiritual sense. It needs good soil. It needs water. And it needs sunlight. Okay. And this. Now we're just talking the natural sense. Now we're just going through this. This second seed didn't have much soil to go with. There's some kind of bedrock or stones there that's, that's blocking it from going deeper. So it's, it's not getting the nutrients down below. So it's, it's got to pop up to get some nutrients from the sun. But when the sun comes out. What does it need now? Where's the guy? Dig deeper, dig deeper, get some water. Can't go deeper. What happens to the, the seed? Dies. But it did grow for a little while, right? It did spring up. The seed came to fruition. It grew for a little while. It just didn't go deep enough. But it did, it did spring up. So the soil did receive the seed. Whereas in the first case, the seed was not received because it was hard. It couldn't go in the soil at all. It didn't bring forth anything. But the second seed brought forth something. Only for a short period of time. For a short period of time. And depending on the weather, how much how hard the sun is, how you know vicious the sun is, it may stick around for quite some time. Depending on how depending on the weather. It may stick around for a while. And you may never know. You may think, man, this thing's going great. Look at it's growing already. It's popping up out of the ground. I can't believe how good my tomato plant's doing. 100 degree heat. This dies. And now you know. Without digging deep into the ground, now you know what was wrong with that, that seed or that ground. And then some fell among thorns. The thorns sprang up and choked them. So we have this, this one piece of soil here, and it's being used by too many things has too many plants trying to grow in the same spot and, and these thorns are more powerful in the soil, so choking it out. But it was there. It was there for a little while, but the thorns were more powerful. And the thorns choked out the seed. So the plant died in that case too. But it was there for a while. It was just in the same soil with other things and just it couldn't make it. It couldn't make it. Because the thorns were overtaking that soil and choked it. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So there's different, very different amounts of what it will yield depending on how well the soil is. I mean, if you really just till the soil up and put lots of manure in there and lots of fertilizer in there and just till it up all year round and put all the stuff in there, finally comes a plant, you're going to get a better fruit, a better crop than the one who didn't do that. And just kind of, you know, the day before they planted, dug it up a little bit and put the seed in there. We'll see what happens kind of idea. And so depending on how the soil is cultivated will determine how much crop is yielded by that seed. By that seed. Now let's, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the purpose of the parables here. Uh, now, there's three purposes of the parables here, according to Jesus. And, and disciples came to him and asked him, you know why? Because this is the first time they've seen this. So they have reason to be curious about this. And wh why are you speaking to them in parables? And he said, because it has been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. Oh, man. Calvinists love to extrapolate that one verse out of the context and run with it, don't they? See, look, it's been given to him, but it hasn't been given to him. But, you know, if we were to just, we've been going through Matthew. This is so, why it's so important to read a book all the way through. I read big sections of it at one time so you can understand the flow of thought here. <clears throat> and we're going to see why it's been given to them and why it hasn't been given to other ones. Now, this given to them thing, is this something that, I mean, did they actually understand this parable when he first said it? I mean, it doesn't say that here in Matthew, but you go to Mark chapter 4 and verse 10, and uh, what did they do? It says in Mark 4 and verse 10, But when he was alone, those around him at 12 asked him about the parable. So even they didn't understand it fully at first. But what are they doing? What are they doing that others are not doing? They're seeking. They're seeking more knowledge and more understanding. They want it. They want what Christ has. And for those who really want it, he will give it to them. And notice, it's not, if you look at Mark 4, verse 10 very carefully, it's not just the disciples here. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve 
asked him about the parable. And every time we go out and preach, there's people who want to know more. They come to me. I want to know more. They're hungry. They'll come closer. And there's those who are mocking and scoffing and walk away. So you know what kind of soil they are by how they're responding to the message. But notice that God is not determining. And nowhere in Scripture does it determine. Does it say that God determines who seeks for more information and who doesn't? God is simply, once again, we've talked about this before in this fellowship, has determined what kind of person he will reveal truth to. Someone who really wants it. Someone who's seeking after it. Not someone who sees these hundreds of miracles being done, people being healed, you know, demon-possessed people being delivered, and then say it's of the devil. When they know it's not of the devil. They've never seen something like this in their life. The blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the mute speaking. And the mystery here, we're not really talking about a mystery novel here. We're talking about uh, mystery in the sense that it's something that has not been revealed before fully, but now it's fully being revealed. And if you want to read more about the mystery, you can go to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul talks about this in depth in Ephesians chapter 3, the mystery. I think he used to, and this is mystery here, it's just really transliterated from the Greek word mysterion. And so he, he really goes into depth about what the mystery is there. Mystery revealed to him and the apostles, proclaimed to the world. And anyone else who wants to know the mystery. And in verse 12, it really kind of helps to understand why it's been given to someone, not to others. Because there's some who value the information they're giving, and therefore they seek for more. And there's some who do not value the information they're getting, all the healings being done around them, and what's been preached so far, and they reject it and harden their hearts, and therefore what even been given to them will be taken away from them. Very important principle here to, to understand. Uh, I'm not sure if I understand what your question is, brother. I'm sorry, you, you had a, a little lead in there that said the three purposes of the parable. Oh, I haven't, I haven't even started that yet. I can't haven't even started the three purposes yet. Uh, but I'll get to that here in a second. But there's a very important principle to learn here from verse 12. Disobedience to known truth equals no further understanding of other truths. Not only that, according to Jesus... He might take away the knowledge you already had to begin with. So disobedience to known truth, or non-submission to known truth, equals no further understanding of other truths. And Jesus repeats this same thing several other times, too. In Matthew 25, it says the same thing. Yeah. Disobedience to known truth equals no further understanding of other truths that have not been revealed to you yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let me me go through the, the three purposes of the parable. The three reasons for the parable. Number one, to reveal truth. To those who really want it. In the parable of the sower, uh, there's three soils that want it. There's three soils that want it in the parable of the sower, and they get it. So you, you have to, for those who really want the truth, it reveals truth to them because they're seeking it. They, maybe they don't understand it at first. Can you please explain it to us, Jesus? And they explain it to them. So it reveals truth. That's the first purpose of parables. To reveal truth to those who really want it. Two, conceal truth. Conceal truth from the hard, dull hearts of those who close their eyes. Conceal truth from the hard, dull hearts of those who close their own eyes and also to make it confusing to them. So reveal truth, conceal truth. Number three, fulfill prophecy. And you see in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, 
verses 9 through 10. And if you were to go to in the back of your Bible and look at that, you're going to see it's not going to match up perfectly because he's quoting from the Septuagint. Does anyone want to remind me what the Septuagint is? Yes, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that's right. And every Bible that I know of today is translated from the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay. So Jesus is quoting from Septuagint here. And you see there's a little bit of difference here. We're going to go back to Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 of your English translation of the Hebrew. And, and this fulfilled prophecy is a parallel fulfillment. Which means that it had an a, a, um, application to Isaiah at that moment in time. He was actually being told by God to go do this to Israel. To speak to them. So it's a parallel fulfillment. So it, it, if, if Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, if Jesus never did it, we would have never known that it needed a fulfillment. Because it had an actual fulfillment in the past. And you see in verse 13 that they do not understand. And which soil does not understand? The first soil. The wayside. Where it's not really soil, it's more like a, kind of like a sidewalk, I guess you can say. And sea doesn't go down into cement and sidewalk. And so the hard hearts are those who Jesus is referring to here when he's quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. They do not understand. They see with their eyes what Jesus is doing, what he's saying, but they don't see spiritually. They hear with their ears physically what Jesus is saying, but they don't hear spiritually. They maybe understand his his natural part of his parable here, but he doesn't they don't understand the spiritual implications of the parable. And nor do they care. Because they seek after more information? They sure don't. But notice when Jesus is quoting here, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and notice some things here that, that directly go against Calvinistic teaching and, and affirm free will. The hearts of this people have grown dull. Dull, like calloused. You know, Daniel, you go outside and you work, maybe you're slinging the sledgehammer or the axe. What happens to your hand after a while? What do you get on your hands? Calluses. Calluses, right? Oh, blisters first, right? And then calluses becomes what? Hard. So these people's hearts are growing hard. They're growing dull. They're hearing these truths from Jesus. They're seeing these miracles happen, but they're not submitting to them. Therefore, their hearts are becoming dull. Oh, this is boring. You know, I know I'm supposed to stop sinning and follow Jesus, but, you know, I've heard this a million times. I'm not going to do it. That's what it's like. It's boring. It's dull. Their heart has become hard and calloused. Because they're not obeying the truth they have. Very dangerous place to be in. Their ears are hard of hearing. Huh? What would you say? Or maybe it's kind of like the way I was when I was a teenager. My mom would tell me to take the trash and I had selective listening. And later on she said, why didn't you take the trash? I was like, I didn't hear you tell me that. Well, I really did hear it with my ears. I just had selective listening. I didn't care to hear it. So I didn't care to take the trash out. These sinners didn't care to hear what Jesus was saying because they didn't care to obey him. They were hard of hearing. And and tell me tell me what it says here in verse 15. Who closed their eyes? Did God close their eyes? Well, they closed their eyes. But as they close their eyes, does God keep telling them, open them, open them, open them? What does he do eventually? Okay, I'll help you keep them closed. I'm going to take away the truth you already knew. That's a judgment of God. You know, so the concealing part, the concealing truth, the second purpose of the parables, is a judgment from God upon these people who are saying that his miracles are from Beelzebub. Well, it's obvious they're not. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Well, they are blessed. Uh, but God didn't make them hear. He didn't make them see. He didn't make them keep their eyes open. He didn't make them keep their ears open. 
He's simply stating the fact. Your ears are blessed. Your eyes are blessed. You're seeking after more information. And, and compared to these people over here who are just dull of hearing, hardened hearts, callous hearts, who are calling my miracles of the devil, you're blessed. You're blessed. And not only you are blessed above and beyond them, but you're blessed above and beyond the prophets of the Old Testament and the righteous men of the Old Testament. They long to see this, and you get to see it. So you're, you're, you're more blessed above and beyond them, even. Because you get to see this face to face. And now we have Jesus' understanding or explanation of the parable of the sower here. And I, I want us to really look at the language here. Now, we looked at the natural example here. And hopefully, when you heard me go through the natural example, you were applying some of it to the spiritual example I was going through it. Okay? Anyone who hears the word of the kingdom, so he's hearing it. He's hearing with his physical ears now. Okay? And does not understand it. Now, why doesn't they? Why don't they understand it? Because they've hardened their hearts, they've calloused their hearts, and their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. That's why they don't understand. And if they saw, if they would soften their hearts, open their eyes, open the ears, they would seek after more information and get clarification, understanding. Then what happens? The wicked one comes. Now, the word one there is, is in italics. It's not in the Greek. So it literally says the wicked comes. Now, in the um, the Luke, uh, the, the Mark uh, example of this, in Mark 4.15, it says Satan comes. And I think, really, it could be either or. Satan or the wicked. Just wicked people in general. And what came to my mind I was reading through this and praying about it is like when I'm preaching in the open air and the children are walking by and they're paying attention or listening or hearing and the mothers close their ears. Come on, let's go, let's go to listen to him. That's wicked. And oftentimes you're speaking to a, there's a group of teenagers, you're speaking to one of them that's really attentive, really soaking and his friends try to pull him away. The wicked comes and try to pull him away. So it's it, the wicked or it could be Satan. And, and, and when you see the word Satan in the Bible in this kind of situation, it doesn't always mean literally Satan himself is doing it. But satanic forces are involved. Satan is not omnipresent. But that means that he's not everywhere at one time. He's not like God. He's limited. He's a cre creature of God. He doesn't have the same attributes God has. So the wicked comes and snatches away from his heart. But he who receives the seed on stony places, this is he who receives the word and immediately receives it with joy. So there's, a, there's people who receive the word of God with joy. But when, because there's no root, when he endures only for a little while. So he does endure for a little while, but he does not endure until the end. So the, the person who receives the, the word on stony places does endure for a little while. Everyone up here. Up here. He does endure for a little while, but does not endure to the end. So he will not be saved. He does endure for a little while. For a little while. So this person, see, for example, Ray Comfort, he'd say that the second soil was never saved. But where's he getting that from? Is the seed the same in every situation? Someone had to believe there's some kind of watered-down gospel being preached to the second soil and the third soil. Where is that found in this scripture? And where does it say that they were never saved? How can an unbeliever receive the gospel with joy and endure in it for a little while and spring up what they plant that endures for a little while? How is that possible for the ungodly who are not saved? It's not possible. So I reject that interpretation of it. And I receive what the Word of God says. And why do they fall away? What is the sun in this situation? Tribulation or persecution? And, and what does... What is the, the saint of God who desire to live a godly life? What are they guaranteed according to 2 Timothy 3.12? Persecution. So everyone's guaranteed it. But some will fall away. They'll reject the work it wants to do in their lives. 
and their roots won't go deeper. They'll just fall down over and die. That's what will happen to them. So we need to have the right expectations when it comes to the Christian faith that persecution and tribulation will come because of the word. But don't stumble. Don't stumble because of the word. What, what did Jesus say about those who are ashamed of him and his words? He'll be ashamed of you. Don't be a fall away because of tribulation or persecution because of his word. Stand strong. Let the roots go deep. Let it do a work in your heart and your mind. Go deeper with God because these things will happen. And I'll tell you, when hard times come, you're going to have two choices. You can wither away or you can go deeper. That's going to be the options you're going to have. Which one will you choose? It says at the end of verse 21, it says he stumbles. The Greek word there is where we get our English word scandalized from. Scandalizomai. And it literally means cease believing. How can you see something that you weren't doing in the first place? Cease believing. Fall into sin. The cause of ruin. The cause of ruin. And we turn to Matthew 5.29, you'll see another use of this, this word too. And you'll see how serious it is to be involved in a scandal. If you're in the faith. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body be cast into hell. Now, which word, I'm going to let you guess here, which word do you think is translated from scandalism I there? You want to guess? No? Your right eye caused you to sin. Well, it, I'm looking for the word that's scandalizomai is translated into an English language here. It's the word sin. Right eye caused you to sin. And what's the the end result of someone who stays in that sin? Your whole body shall be cast into hell. So where scandalizomai in Matthew 13 is translated as stumble, in Matthew 5.29 is translated as sin. They sinned. They stumbled. They ceased to believe. They fell into sin. It was the cause of their ruin. These people were saved. I don't know how long it could be. Going back to my natural example, they, until maybe tribulation and persecution has come for a while. And they believe for quite some time. But then when that comes, it just withers away. Because they don't want to go deep with God. They allow the rocks in their heart to come up instead of tilling those out of the way and allowing their roots to go deeper. They allow the rocks and their love for their own life to cause them to stumble into sin. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the care of this world, the seedless riches, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So he becomes unfruitful, which means he might have been fruitful for a period of time. And he did come up and the, the, all the world around him, the sin and you know the flesh, those things caused him to become unfruitful and to choke the word out. You know, First John two fifteen says that do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, love the Father's not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father. Is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. James 4 4. Adulterers and adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore is a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This person loved the world. The world was around him, he had all these thorns around him. Instead of getting some goats in there and eating the thorns out, or yanking the thorns out at the root, he allowed the thorns to choke the word of God out of his life. But he did receive it initially. He became unfruitful, though, because he gave in to the world and the riches. And you can't serve two masters. You can't have two masters in the soil of your heart. 
You can't have the thorns of the world and have the good seed of the Word of God. You can't have two masters. You can't love both God and riches. Jesus said. And then we have the, the best the best soil here. He who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. And once again, why did the disciples understand it? And the other people who came with him, why did they understand it? Because they went further. They sought more for more information. For indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. In the parable of the, of the sower, the four different soils, we have three of them end up going to hell. Three of them receive it, but three of them go to hell. One didn't receive. Now, this, isn't, this isn't a plan that every time you go out, 25% are going to be good seeds, good soil, I mean. It's not a plan like that. It's just telling you the type of hearers you're going to have. If the seed you're sowing out is good, these are the responses you're going to have. And so the, the false convert issue that people believe in doctrine, which I believe in too, I believe is a result of uh, maybe hearing a, a bad gospel, but that's not addressing this here. Not one little bit. The same seed, and it's obvious to me that three of them responded properly at first, only one endured to the end producing much fruit because he abided in Christ and apart from Christ you can do nothing but in Christ you will bear much fruit according to John 15. Much fruit. And the only other thing I, I forgot to bring up here is in verse 12 it says whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now, I'm going to go to Luke chapter 8 and verse 18 and see if you can see a difference here. Luke gives some added details here. Luke 8, 18. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. So take heed how you hear, with what kind of ears you're hearing with. Dull of hearing ears? Or eager to hear ears? That want to hear, that want to understand, that want to obey, that want to have the extra knowledge. Even what he seems to have. See, these people who have hard hearts, who Christ is speaking to in parables to bring judgment upon them and conceal the truth from them, because he knows they're not going to seek after more truth. They never really had the truth in the first place. But they seemed to have. Because it was presented to them, but they never applied it to their lives. So they never really truly had it. They never truly had it. Like God wanted them to have it. Alright, so God does not decide what kind of soil you are, how you will hear, how you will see, how you will understand. You decide that. All right. I think that's what I have for today. Uh, questions, objections, and extra points we want to make? Can you go back to the uh, disobedience and known truth? Scripture references on that too. Uh, scripture references, verse 12. You added another one from Matthew, I thought. I don't think so. Well, I mean, Jesus does say that same thing again in Matthew, in Matthew twenty-five. But I don't, I don't know what the exact verse is, brother. But it's in there somewhere. I think it's going to say here, Matthew twenty-five, twenty-nine. So I think it is. <coughs> but uh, disobedience to known truth equals no further understanding of other truths and confusion on past truths.
So I think as, as we're reading through Matthew, the scriptures in Matthew that Calvinists and other people who believe in determinism, God decreeing all things are from the past, I think we're dispelling them piece by piece because we're seeing things in its proper context, in its larger context, not even in just the verses around it context, but its larger context of the narrative as a whole, what we're reading here. And you know, just, just the fact that Christ didn't start speaking in parables until now. And it was right after they just said that his miracles of the devil. That's an important fact to understand. When it comes to why he's saying these things. And why they won't understand. And looking in, in Mark and Luke and seeing what they say that gives extra details that Matthew didn't give. To help understand what is actually being said here. So we don't get sidetracked into false teaching. Yeah, there's a preacher from a long time ago. I won't name his name, but he preached on the same thing week after week after about repentance. And a lady came to him and said, "When are you going to stop preaching repentance?" He said, "When you repent." Yeah, because they obey the truth they have. Otherwise, they'll become dull of hearing, hard of hearing. Their hearts will become dull and calloused. Oh, is it stop sitting? Oh, yeah. I'll get to that later on. Yeah. It's really just like America. Now, there's lots of false teaching out there, lots of bad gospel out there, but there's lots of good gospel out there, too. And I find that America as a whole is hard in their hearts, dull of hearing. They could even care to less to hear it. Uh, I, I sometimes I almost feel like I'm ready to just, okay, let me just move to a different country where people haven't really heard the truth very much. You go preach to them instead. You're dealing with a hard-hearted, dull-of-hearing, hard-of-hearing people who've closed their own eyes and don't want to hear the truth anymore. And part of it is their fault, and part of it's a judgment from God on their hearts, which is their fault in the first place. Well, we wouldn't know if there was more points until it happened, so. Yeah, so. I, I don't know of any other ones that are fulfilled more than twice. I, the only ones I know of are fulfilled in the Old Testament, in its proper context, that are fulfilled one more time in the New Testament. I don't know of any that are fulfilled more than that. Is it possible? Yeah, I, I guess so. God can do whatever he wants. But the, I think the point of parallel prophecy is that we wouldn't know they had a fulfillment in the New Testament until it actually happened. <coughs> well, I guess that point, you know, point to it, I may might be state something here, so I'm going to be careful, but um, preterists will look at Old Testament prophecy if they look at it fulfilled uh, in the Titus and the AD 7. And so my point is, you know, here you have the prophecy in the Old Testament right. fulfilled then. Maybe may have been, that's what I'm trying to allude to, it may have been fulfilled in AD 70, and then it's going to be fulfilled again at the end. Yeah, I mean, here's the problem with what they're saying, though, because they're talking about Titus, that came in temple, this great temple, but does Titus's name equal 666 in, in the Greek language? I don't believe it does. So he's, he's not fulfilling everything that needed to be fulfilled in order for him to actually be the fulfillment. You see what I'm saying? So, so he, so he has to uh, fulfill all things. He's he's a type of an antichrist, but he couldn't be the antichrist who's being fulfilled, which Scripture's talking about. You know, so he's not. It's not a fulfillment in that sense. Yeah. So, um, Antiochus Epiphanes is under the same kind of thing a few hundred years before that in the Jewish temple, I believe. Yeah. Um, the same kind of thing with the on the altar seem like, I mean, it's almost like do they read scriptures and say, oh, I'm going to go do this to defend the Jewish God. Yeah, this is probably the Satan behind them. Yeah. 
Uh, the other problem we had with that is AD 70, of course, was well before John even wrote Revelation. Right. Or that they ended the, end of the first century. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably one of the biggest points against that too, but Yeah, but the parallel prophecy just means that when it was originally written, there was an application then. But then, secondarily, there's an application later on. And another example I'd give is the Judas. A familiar friend lifted up his heel against me. They had a fulfillment in the Old Testament. And if Judas would have never came along and done that, we would have never known there'd be a parallel fulfillment until it actually happened. Because there's no requirement in the original situation that there must be a future fulfillment as well. There's no requirement there. So until actually God did bring it before, uh, bring it forth, he had no fulfillment. So, but Jesus is dealing with the same kind of people Isaiah was dealing with. That's why it's a, it's a fulfillment, a parallel fulfillment. It's the same kind of people he's dealing with here. To reject the truth. Does that mean every chance you actually quote that Isaiah verse out of the yeah, if I was if I was speaking in parables, that would make sense. Yeah, I, I think that's the context here is that he's he's doing that. That's that, that's for asking him, why are you doing this? And, uh, but yeah, I, I yeah, I mean people are hard of hearts all the time. And, um, If someone who believes in one saved, always saved, a person of saints came to today and told you the parable of the sower, is talking about people who were never truly saved for the second and third soils there. Would you be able to refute what they're saying and defend the truth? That's the question I have for you. Would you be able to look at the text when Jesus is first saying it and when Jesus is explaining it and be able to refute what they're saying? God, God wants them to have the truth, too. They have to choose whether they're going to submit to the truth. The whole thing you can do that, you should be able to look at the scriptures that people are giving you, promote their false teachings, and be able to break it down and show them that's not saying what they're saying it's saying. And that's done by looking at the context and looking at the language that's being used there. Very simple to me. I think to, to refute what they're saying. But for so long, you know, people, they come to this and they never really look at it for themselves. And they hear a teacher teach about it. Oh, that sounds right. That sounds good. Go along with everything else he's saying. Must be right. The second soil, he was able to eat. See it with joy. See it with joy. And enjoy it for a while. Yes. Right. And stumble means to be scandalized. Scandal. Fall into sin. Cause of ruin. Cease to believe. And you go back to the natural example, you can see that there was a plant that came up. The seed opened up and a plant came up. Not like in the first example where the seed never got into the ground in the first place. That's the only soil in the parable of the sower that did not actually believe. That was never saved. was the first one. Because evil or Satan, satanic forces came and take it away. Took it away. And the, the third soil became unfruitful. The seed was received. It was choked out. But it was there. 